Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the first ever Q&A episode. We're a week late, but we're here, uh, and we want to answer the questions that have been coming in. So this is Let's Read the Bible, a podcast of the Grove Church. And if you would like to follow along with us, you can always download the Version Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. Uh, we also have physical reading plans available in the church lobby every Sunday. Yeah, and like always, uh, you can feel free to email your questions about the Bible, the Bible reading plan, to us at info at grove.church. Uh, info at grove.church is that email that you can do. And then obviously we can't get to every single question. Um, and so what we've actually decided is to do uh, a Q&A episode like Evan just mentioned. And today is that day. It's this episode right now. I'm actually really excited too. This is going to be fun. Yeah, we loved your questions and um, we couldn't get to all of them. Um, make sure you're still sending them in. But uh, we got like three or four today. We got four questions lined up that we're yeah. gonna that we're gonna work through. All right, so let's get into it. All right, so the first question is a little bit of a little bit of a softball, just to get warmed up a little bit. But I thought it was uh, came in through Facebook actually, but I thought it was a really interesting question, and it gives us an opportunity to kind of um, talk about something that we we probably wouldn't talk about given just um, you know going through the Bible. And the question was this: uh, What is your favorite Bible translation, and why? What or the way it was asked is: What Bible translation do you use? So I think we're going to talk a little bit about what the different translations are. There's obviously a ton of them, um, a little bit about the types of translations, and at the end we'll talk about um, which ones we prefer. Uh, I do want to preface in the beginning that when we say which ones we prefer, we're not saying that uh, those are the best and that if you read other translations, you're wrong, but rather those are just the ones that uh, that me and Connor like. Yep. So there's three different types of what we'll call um, – Genres. Genres of yeah. translation. And so those, those are word for word, thought for thought, and paraphrases. So we'll start off with word for word. Um, it's kind of self-explanatory for what it is, but basically it's saying that when these people went through and translated the Bible, they translated it for every word, and the only time they're mixing stuff around is for grammar. So obviously Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, different languages, then English, and so you flip things around for grammar, but for the most part – the word that they're saying is the word where they're finding the closest match in English. Yeah, and with this, we have to keep in mind that uh, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic are what we call picture languages. Um, and so as they are speaking these words, they're actually more or less painting a picture rather than writing sentences. And so um, because of that, you can maybe imagine how it was difficult to essentially interpret these things. And so the reason why we like the word for word is because <laughs> – Really, it's very systematic through how everything was translated, um, and we don't find a lot of faults in these things. Yeah, if you're looking for um, really a deep study into the minutia of a book, I would recommend using a word-for-word word for word translation because um, it's going to help you the most with accuracy. Um, a few examples of uh, popular word-for-word -word translations would be the English Standard Version or the ESV. Uh, the King James Version, which I'm sure most of us are aware of, and then the New King James Version. Uh, all of those were translations from uh, – and particularly with the uh, with the King James because it's older. They were working with what they had at the time. But with that, it was a word-for-word -word translation, uh, which is, you know, it's a good thing. Yeah. And, um, man, my favorite – I know maybe we're jumping ahead, but I typically read either out of the ESV – um, and I have a New King James Study Bible um, that was a gift given to me. Well, spoiling, spoiling the end of yeah. the question already. Well, sorry. Yeah, well, it's fine. But it's okay. I have other favorites as well. Well, if we're talking about it, I also read the ESV. Well, so, well, I knew we, we like spoiled that. For 
And uh, the second type that we were talking about is the thought for thought translation. Um, now, obviously, what I mentioned earlier about the picture language, um, they do paint broad thoughts. And so uh, these translations essentially try to capture that and communicate it to us accurately. Uh, translations like this um, are probably, I, I think what we mainly use here at the church is the NIV. Yeah. Um, and then also uh, the NLT. So the NIV is a new international version and the NLT is the new living translation. Um, both of these I love. I feel like it's a it's a great balance between the word for word and um, and really like today's language. I mean, as mm-hmm. we get into ESV, KJV, and NKJV, um, sometimes the the language isn't that can be a little bit harder to yeah, read. Yeah, it's not it, the the flow of thought isn't as easy. Whereas the NIV and NLT, they were really written for the reader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're um, kind of powering through a reading plan, wanting to read through the Bible. Um, it's uh, thought for thought translations are very good for that because um, while it's not necessarily the word for word, what they're doing is they're bringing it into today's language a little bit more and allowing you to kind of work your way through it. Uh, and the final one we want to talk about today, or at least the final one of what I would call um, good Bible translations, would be the message version or paraphrases. Uh, the message being the most popular of them, and and really what we mean by that is it's kind of a step further than thought for thought in that. It's almost helpful to think of it rather as a Bible translation as as it being a commentary. Yeah. And what I mean by that is um, it's very well researched. It's not a bad thing at all. Um, but when you're reading through it, you're really reading someone's someone who takes the words of the Bible and then intentionally brings them into modern language, modern analogies, modern things like that. And so obviously it's, it's extremely readable. The message is probably the easiest uh, translation of the Bible to be able to read through. Um, but at the same time, you're not necessarily getting all of the context that you would get if you're reading through uh, one of the other translations. Yeah, I would say uh, the message, first off, I love it. Um, mm-hmm. I love, especially being a youth pastor, um, using the message, I really use it to my advantage to, you know, sometimes we talk about things in the Bible um, that really don't, um, I don't know, contextually it makes sense, but like if we just kind of start reading it, students might get a little confused. So that's where I really, for a youth, we land um, in NLT and the message just for essentially being able to explain it easier, more digestible. I even, um, I, I love the message. Uh, my wife, st- when she was a new believer, she actually started reading the message and that's how sure. she got into the scripture. And so, man, the message is phenomenal. There have been some people in the past that say it's not and that it's heretical. Um, we're just going to go ahead and uh, cross those out. Uh, Eugene Peterson was phenomenal. He actually just passed away, um, but he did his research. It's not just him reading an NIV translation and then putting it in his own words. That's very important to know. He is not translating a translation. He was actually doing the work in the beginning and bringing it into modern language. Yeah, and I think a, a helpful way to look at it might be um, think of it as if you're reading someone preaching about the Bible. So it shouldn't be the only way that you consume the Bible, but it can be extremely helpful. Um, it's all the way lined up. Like I said, it's not heretical. They do some really good things with it. Um, but I would always balance out uh, a paraphrase translation with also a, uh, a different type of translation as well. Yeah. And I think as we were prepping for this, we were talking about, um, man, I don't eat the same meal every single day. Right. right? Um, like the, the things I eat, you know, on Wednesday before youth, it's usually something quick, right? I, you know, pizza that I can put in an oven that I don't have to prep. But like on a Thursday night when it's me and my wife's date night, we're either going out to eat or we're making our own food at home. 
there's variety and there's beauty in variety, right? And so um, don't feel like you need to stick to just one, um, but really maybe narrow it down to um, one of each of these. So, you know, an ESV and an IV and maybe an, um, the message, whatever it is, just make sure you have variety. Um, they say variety is a spice of life. So make sure you're doing that in your uh, Bible reading as well, just so you can get a whole um, well-rounded picture of what the scripture is actually saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and real quick, um, Evan, you mentioned um, good translations. Right. And I, I think we would just want to take one moment um, to mention, um, you know, these, if, if you are a part of the Grove Church, and even if you're not, if you're part of a Christian church, uh, we're not going to tell you which version of the Bible to read. Obviously, we already said that. But um, there are a few that maybe we want to mention that really might do us um, some justice. If maybe you're a new believer, you don't really know, um, you know, di- there, there's different religions that claim to be Christian and they also have Bibles and they also call them the Bible. Right. And so um, just be aware that anything like New World Translation, um, the Book of Mormon, things like that, those are not what we would consider accurate um, or doctrine. We would actually consider those heretical documents, meaning that they are pretty much the opposite of what we believe. And when you look at yeah, when you when you compare them to the actual original text, it's not a matter of um, a difference of opinion when it comes to translation. It's full on changing things to fit the doctrine that they've already laid out. And when we mentioned that because um, you actually said you had a, a, a story, which I thought was really interesting and poignant that um, you had a student who uh, knew Christian, the Jehovah's Witness came to his house and just handed him a Bible. And obviously, you know, if you don't know the context of that, you're like, oh, thank you. And you're taking the Bible and, and you realize, you know, the Bible he had been reading for a while um, was full of mistakes and full of doctrinal errors that yeah. obviously aren't good. Yeah. And um, man, as we are reading the Bible, it's very important to remember that we need to read for truth, not for what the words say. Now, I want to be very um, careful here because that might have sounded like I contradicted myself. But the reality is um, the Bible has a lot of inherent truth within the scriptures, but sometimes um, the truth actually gets lost. And because of this, uh, we actually need to be looking for the truth within the scriptures, not just the words that are written on the page. Um, this will help us differentiate between what is an accurate translation of scripture and what's inaccurate, meaning the interpretation of certain verses and how they apply to our lives. Uh, here's the deal. The goal of reading scripture, in my opinion, is twofold. It's to grow deeper in our relationship with God and to find the truth within the scriptures as well. Right. Um, and just remember, context changes. Truth doesn't. So a lot of things that are written in the Old Testament, Leviticus, Numbers, you know, Exodus, like all of these, the, the laws and stuff, in context, they made a lot of sense. But now some of us can be scratching our heads saying, what the heck does this even mean? <laughs> And uh, an example of this is actually, and I'm going to fly through this, so if you need to rewind the podcast and listen again, just do it real quick. But for the sake of time, we're going to fly through it. An example of this is found in Leviticus chapter 19, um, mainly verse 29, but it even goes back a few verses, uh, where many people use this uh, to say we shouldn't get tattoos. And um, yeah, that's actually what is written in the scripture, like word for word. It says you shall not get tattoos. Uh, but if we actually dig a little deeper and read this in context, this statement in context, we realize that when Moses was writing this, it was a command from God not to participate in uh, what's what were called pagan mourning rituals. Um, not mourning as in, uh, you know, like the mourning, but mourning as in like the loss of a loved one. Um, with this came uh, them gashing their bodies with knives as a sign of I'm mourning the loss of a loved one. And basically they were also getting tattoos in this. Now we see people with tattoos, crosses, tattoos all over their bodies whatever. Um, 
and and sometimes in the past people have said, hey, that's a sin. You're not supposed to get a tattoo. But out if we actually read it in the context of uh, pagan worship and mourning rituals, we actually see that it's really not even about tattoos or adorning your body. It's about, um, you know, what God says is you shall have no other gods before me. And so therefore we can take the truth out of these scriptures, which states, uh, you know, we're to worship the one and only God, not you aren't allowed to have tattoos because the Bible says so. That's a quick example of how to just read for truth rather than just reading things at face value. Yeah. And when we read the Bible, it's, it's very important um, to not separate ourselves from those people who read it at the time that it was being read first, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so everything that is written, you have to look at it through the lens of as, as much as we can. You know, So for instance, the New Testament, when we read those books, how does a first century Jew, a first century Greek, how would they read these particular things? Because like you said, the context of those things actually, um, it helps us get deeper in the truth and it helps us realize truly, truly incredible things. I mean, there's so many areas of the Bible where you just read it, it sounds awesome, but then when you dig deeper into the history behind it and you find out what's really going on, um, it just becomes even more beautiful. Yeah. So question two came in via email. Um, And it says this, why does Genesis 6 differentiate sons of God and daughters of humans? Is this how we conveniently sidestep the fact that Adam and Eve have have two sons and then somehow there were a lot more people? So, all right, this is a great question. So, we dug into this one a little bit. Um, And what I would say to be a little bit helpful is there, there are two questions here. First, why does the Bible use the separate titles uh, the sons of God and the daughters of man are the daughters of humans. And then second, how are there more people in the world when Adam and Eve only had two sons? So Connor, do you want to tackle uh, the second part of that question really quick? Yeah. Um, as we see, as I flip my Bible open to Genesis chapter uh, six, that is where this verse is from. But actually, if we flip back uh, one more chapter, Genesis chapter five, verse four, um, the second part of this question was how do we basically justif- justify the sidestepping of Adam and Eve's sons in chapter six? Yeah, if they have sons, how are yeah. there more people in the world? Yeah, if we actually look in uh, verse five, or excuse me, chapter five, verse four, it says this: After he begot Seth, meaning Adam and Eve, the days of Adam were eight hundred years, and he had sons and daughters. Um, so we can actually see here that um, the Bible actually explains that there are more than just, um, you know, Cain and Abel. A lot of people just kind of stop at Cain and Abel where Adam and Eve's sons, and then we kind of just skip ahead to Noah. Um, the reality is it, it explains it here. And, you know, back in the day, obviously, the first people on earth, um, it probably – do you want to explain how this might have might have come to be? I mean, sh- I mean – yeah, not to be weird about it, but basically, most likely, I mean, Cain's wife, when we're talking about these people, it was probably a sister or a niece um, is who Cain gets married to. Because the, the, the scripture that he's referencing in chapter six is after uh, Cain is exiled and punished by God, he goes, he takes a wife, and then he uh, he goes to separate places and begins to um, raise his family there. And so that's where that comes from. Um, and really, I mean, it's one of those things where to, to modern ears, you're just kind of like, well, that's disgusting. And back then, you know, that's just... That's just the way it was. Yeah. So that's the way uh, God had it planned out. And so that's what happens there. Um, and it's it's kind of an interesting thing because the first part of that, uh, of the question, I thought was actually, it was, it was, really, it was really cool to look into. Mm-hmm. So the, the first part was, why does the Bible use the different titles of 
the sons of God and the daughters of humans. And so uh, what we want to do when we get these type of questions is we want to lay out basically all of the different interpretations within orthodoxy. And what I mean by that is within like if if we as Christians – can have these differences of opinion mm-hmm. and still be Christians together. So obviously, yeah. if your tr- if your um, opinion on something is like, well, that means Jesus and God, well, then you're not a Christian. Like, yeah. but these ones are ones where, as Christians, we can have these differences of opinion. So we're going to lay out all of the all of the ideas and then kind of tell you where uh, me and Connor land. Sometimes we'll agree, sometimes we might land differently. And you know what? That's okay because yeah. as Christians, we can disagree. Yeah, it's basically like a bullseye, right? The bullseye is orthodoxy, meaning a hundred percent accurate. But as long as we're on the target, um, that's considered orthodoxy. So we're we're within the correct doctrine, correct train of thought, and that's not to you know give us excuse to maybe have different opinions that are just radically different. Literally, it's just so hey, you know what? Some of these things, a lot of us, we're not going to agree on, and that's okay. That's the beauty of the church is that a mm-hmm. lot of people, different backgrounds, different opinions, can come together, can talk about scripture. And can literally be Jesus to this world. And if you remember a couple of weeks, ago, weeks ago, we talked about the uh, the difference between closed-handed and open-handed issues. So closed-handed things that we as Christians, we really can't disagree about. Um, what we're talking about today are all open-handed issues, mm-hmm. things that Christians disagree about. Um, so there's a few different ideas put forward for who these sons of God and daughters of man are. So the first idea is that when it references sons of God, it's saying fallen angels, or in other words, demons, and then normal human women. And the idea there is that there's some type of perversion, which obviously God does not approve of. Um, There's some type of either intermarriage that's happening, um, and it's giving birth to these different types of people. And so uh, God takes a part of Genesis and basically fully rebukes it. The second idea is that the sons of God could be referring to the ungodly descendants of Lamech. This line of people is, to, is said to have not served the Lord. And then the daughters of uh, of man would refer to, uh, or I guess I should reverse that. The idea is it's a group of ungodly people marrying a group of godly people. And then the third idea is basically the inverse of that, where it'd be uh, godly women getting mixed up with ungodly men. Yeah, and so where Evan and I would land, um, and you know, like we said earlier, this is an open hand issue. It's not closed hand, um, so it's not something that we're saying this is gospel. But this is basically our interpretation of this: is that um, the sons of God would refer to people who serve the Lord, and the daughters of man uh, basically would be referring to people of the day who were not serving the Lord. And we can see that there was intermarriage happening between these two groups, and basically in doing so. Uh, they were not making God the number one priority in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. But question three, um, this one was actually the most fun I had of all the questions because it was it was one of those things where um, uh, listener, I don't know if we want to say names or anything like that, but uh, you actually really stumped me on this one because I had never, or I guess I shouldn't say stumped, but I had never once thought of this. Yeah. And you know, how many times have you read through Genesis? And that's what's so great about this podcast is having people um, who read things with different eyes and, yeah. and uh, all of a sudden bring something up where you're like, Oh, huh. I wonder how yeah, that's happened. a little a little humbling. I mean, I went to college for this. Evan went to college for this. Yeah. And then you get to Genesis chapter seven and this guy asks a question and me and Evan were both like, hmm. Never thought of it. So never even thought of it that way. The question so. is this, with no further ado. Uh Noah was told in Genesis seven to bring clean and unclean animals. Now this is way before the law of Moses was uh, the law of Moses was written. 
So was the law then more of a seeing as you keep forgetting type of a thing? Or in other words, why were animals marked as clean and unclean for Noah? Because he was told to bring, you know, different types of animals onto the ark before the law of Moses actually laid them out. And so looking into this, um, one of the interesting things that I found is to, to answer this question, we actually have to go back to the story of Cain and Abel. And what we see there is that, remember, God is – the whole reason Cain and Abel are fighting is because God is judging their sacrifices and God judges Abel's sacrifice as being good and he judges Cain's sacrifice as being bad. Now, what that tells us, we have to do a little bit of inference here, is that there is clearly some sort of standard mm -hmm. that God has for animals to be sacrificed. There's clearly some there's some type of rule that we as the readers of the Bible don't get to know, but that Cain and Abel clearly know about because Abel's obeying it and Cain is not. And to bring it even to past Noah, so in the story of Noah, God tells Noah to bring on uh, extra types of animals basically for sacrifices. He brings on extra clean animals so that when the flood subsides and they get out, he can offer sacrifices to God. And then later, fast forwarding into the story of um, Abraham, remember, God provides a clean animal. He provides a clean ram to be sacrificed. Mm -hmm. um, and, and all throughout Genesis, we see these ideas. What we see is this, um, is this truth that the people of Genesis had some type of law that they were working with that had been given to them. Most likely, it was an oral law that was passed down. And so God commands people certain things, and through the generations, it's passed down. And while it might not have been it might not have been written down until Moses, there certainly was some type of law that the people were working with. Yeah, and I mean, as we even see in the scripture, um, God walked with Adam and Eve for quite a while. And um, you know, sometimes we read that and we think, okay, well, maybe it was you know it was on the ninth day that Adam and Eve sinned. You know, we don't know. And just this right. whole story of you know God had extensive interaction with mankind before the fall. Um, that's one way of looking at this, that maybe there was some oral traditions passed from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel, and then, um, so on and so forth, um, and to their other, uh, to their other kids as well. Um, the reality is we don't have a firm answer. This is where one of those gray issues of, you know, we're not going to hold it with a, with a closed hand. We're going to hold it with an open hand because, um, I'm not saying your guess is as good as ours, but, um, the Bible just doesn't directly say it. And so we're not going to make certain what the Bible is unclear about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that being said, where I would land on it is basically that there's some type of a law that the people of God are working with. Um, and most likely the law that is written down for Moses is that law, maybe with some stuff added onto it that God is saying. Um, but it's not as if there's a different law that God has and all of a sudden he changes everything when Moses comes along. Yeah. All right. So question four. In Luke 21, 32, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of this has taken place. Yet, it seems like not all of those things has happened, even though the generation that Jesus was talking to has passed away. So how do we reconcile this? And there's a few different ways to interpret this. And this is the one where uh, when we were meeting about the podcast to kind of go over everything, we, we spent probably... 80% of the meeting talking about this one because there's, there's a lot here. So we're going to go through for time, uh, try and go a little bit faster, but to give you a quick overview. Uh, the first interpretation is that when Jesus says this generation, he's referring to the disciples that he's talking to at that time. 
And when he says, will not pass away until all of these things have happened, he's referring to the beginning of the end times, which is namely the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD. It's the first of the signs that Jesus talks about. Obviously, even though that happened thousands of years ago, the generation that Jesus is speaking to uh, was certainly alive during that time. The second translation or the second interpretation would be that this generation still refers to those who are hearing Jesus, but it's a double fulfillment in that that generation sees the beginning of what Jesus is talking about, which again would be the destruction of the temple. But since we are all alive in Christ at the end, that generation will not only see the beginning of these things, they will also see the fulfillment of them at the end when they are with Jesus, just like the rest of Christians. Uh, Third would be this generation refers to all believers of Christ. And so when he says this generation will not pass away, he's saying that there will be believers in Christ on the earth while all of these things are happening. Uh, Also, this this interpretation kind of has a slash because this generation could also be referring to uh, the wicked. And so wicked people who do not serve the Lord, people who reject the gospel, saying that that those people will be on the earth until all these things have taken place. Fourth, uh, promise there's only two more. Fourth would be this generation refers to the Jewish race of people. So in other words, at this time, obviously Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's talking to a predominantly Jewish audience and he's saying the Jewish people as a whole will not pass away until all these things have happened. And then fifth, this generation refers to the people who are alive at the very end, right before Jesus comes back. And so basically that view would be that the entire thing is prophetic and that Jesus is referring solely to the future. So with all that being said, Connor, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, where we ended up landing on this? Yeah. And um, what I love about this, it really, the 80% wasn't even research. It was more dialogue that me and Evan were having because I think we both were kind of wrestling with where we both landed Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, not planning it, but we actually both ended on the same thought, which is the third interpretation uh, of this generation referring to all believers of Christ or the wicked who reject his message. Um, in a sense, we are all, we are all part of that generation. It's Jesus speaking to future generations about um, just end times and and really that we're all a part of His story for the redemptive pur- purpose of this world. Yeah, and to give you a little bit of background, um, kind of how we we narrowed it down. So the first and the fifth we kind of eliminated in our heads. Again, open-handed issues. If um, Christians believe this. We're not going to, you know, fight about it. Um, but I think saying that this generation refers to, uh, or I should say, all these things refer to the beginning of what Jesus is talking about is kind of problematic because all these things really doesn't infer that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fifth one being that this generation refers to the people who are alive at the end times. Um, it just seems like odd language for Jesus to use if he's talking about solely people in the future and not yeah. the audience that he's talking about at that time. So the second, third, and fourth ones are the ones where really, um, again, this issue is one where if you came to me really passionate about one of those three, you could probably convince me really yeah. fast that that's yeah. what it is. So um, right now, yeah, landing on three. That's which, not a challenge, by the way. Yeah, right now, landing on three, saying that this generation refers to all believers in Christ. Um, but I think all, all five of them, like I said, are th- opinions that really Christians can absolutely hold. Uh, the second through the fourth are ones where um, I think – Given the language that Jesus is using, I think you can land there pretty easily. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps it up for uh, the first Q&A episode. We hope you guys liked it. We hope you enjoyed it. And uh, 
do us a favor. If you've been enjoying the if you've been enjoying the podcast, you know, give us a rating. It really helps us out. And don't forget to keep emailing us in questions at info at grove.church. We'd love answering them. This was a ton of fun to be able to look into all these different things. And we will see you guys next time. <laughs>